Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. Have you ever stepped into a role and questioned if you were the best person for the job? Do you carry the shame of failures and imperfections everywhere you go? Today, we're speaking with Danessa Knapp, who's an executive coach, thought leader, and author, shifting the global conversation on leadership. Danessa has coached hundreds of executives across every major industry and has developed a reputation as a candid, compassionate, and courageous leadership partner. She's also the author of Naked at Work, A Leader's Guide to Fearless Authenticity. Danessa frequently guides C-suite leaders on how to harness the power of authenticity to drive measurable business results. In this episode, Danessa shares how you can be the strong, inspirational leader you imagine by leading authentically. She makes the case for owning your unique story and using that real, imperfect experience to drive your personal and team performance. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you will find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Danessa. Welcome, Danessa. So great to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Nikki. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, um, we're excited to hear from you because uh, you bring so many unique perspectives and, and especially one about authenticity that is going to be so relevant to our audience. Uh, but first off, let's jump in and uh, tell us your story. Sure, I'm happy to. So I spent about 20 years as both a senior leader at a Fortune 100 company. I was an SVP and also an entrepreneur. And in the middle of all that, I was juggling my real life. So I was married, I had children, then I wasn't married, I was a single mom. And I found that for me, as I was walking into boardrooms, as I was having conversations, I was sometimes distracted by what I thought was this dissonance or this um, distinction between who I was, what the full breadth of my experience had been, and what I thought was expected of me or what I thought the mold required. Mm. And so that dissonance was distracting to me. It was a little like something shiny in my peripheral vision, right? I'd sort of turn and look at that and take my eye off the ball or my eye off the task. And as I thought more and more, and as I rose through the ranks, I would notice where leaders seemed to be super effective or where leaders seemed to be less effective. And ultimately that led to me walking away from my corporate career and Going back to school, I went to Georgetown's executive coaching program and became an executive coach to senior leaders to really more deeply understand what makes really powerful leaders tick and how do they incorporate their story and their experience and all the mess that comes with that for all of us in a way that less powerful leaders don't. And I've really now built my career doing that. So I'm now an executive coach. Uh, I work in some of the largest companies uh, in the world with some of the most senior leaders, helping them focus on how do they bring forward all of the power of their full story and experience in service to their organization and teams. I think what you're describing is something that all of us can relate to. We've all been in that situation at work where, you know, there's, there's a parallel universe um, that uh, we live in. And oftentimes we're not bringing our true selves or a version of the true self that needs to show up. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, um, even for you in your own journey of going from very senior corporate roles to entrepreneurial experiences and then to go back to school and uh, become an executive coach. What is, um, 
What do you think has been the key to all of that? Because it's not easy to switch lanes and a lot of people are very afraid to try new things even when there's um, their instinct might be guiding them in one direction. There's yeah. a fear of trying that out. What has helped you in that? And what did you discover was your unique superpower, if you will? Yeah. So um, I have been gifted with an extraordinary number of spectacular failures, Nikki. <laughs> I love the sound of that. Gifted with extraordinary yeah. failures. So I have been on my face, <laughs> on the ground, in front of everyone I know, more times than I would like to admit. Um, so, you know, it started when I was 16. I talk about that in, in the book uh, where I forgot all the words to a song in front of nearly a thousand people three nights in a row. Wow. Um, and became much more serious and personal when I watched my marriage disintegrate. And I thought, wow, I have been a huge proponent of a traditional family, uh, traditional just in the sense of two parents, not two parents of any particular gender yeah. uh, in, in the house. And that just walked out the door. What do I do now? I started a business that I loved. I bet everything. And, you know, sometimes when you bet the house, the movers come in and pack your dishes. And, <laughs> um, and so I have this superpower now, which I now understand as a superpower, Nikki, which is a whole process, that I am resilient. Mm. I can, it's not about me. It's about what I'm willing to try or do or say. And I have equal numbers more, actually, of spectacular successes once I better understood that you can bet and lose and keep going. You want to bet smart, but betting and losing doesn't mean you're out of the game. Hmm. For me, that was a really pivotal and critical lesson to learn. And, you know, the universe gave me a lot of opportunities to learn that. I wish I could tell you that I learned it the first time, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, and so uh, I am, you know, I'm learning that now and continue to learn and reinforce that. that um, we are here to try big, spectacular things. And sometimes that doesn't work out. Yeah, but it's uh, in the trying that we become who we're meant to be. Yeah. Uh, so kudos to you for completely embracing uh, the failures and setbacks. Um, on the flip side, what is your yeah. proudest career accomplishment? So my proudest career accomplishment is building the business that I've built. Mm. As much as I've failed, you would think that makes me brave. It doesn't. You know, sometimes people think, uh, that if you're used to it, it doesn't sting or it doesn't hurt or it doesn't make you think about it. And so walking away from a secure corporate gig where I had a really powerful trajectory, I had a path laid out for me, I had folks asking me not to go, walking away and betting on myself is my proudest achievement. I can honestly say that I am living a deeper, richer experience. This job I do where I, you know, travel the world and speak to keynote crowds or where I sit across from a female executive who's making powerful decisions that affect our society mm -hmm. is a gift. And to be able to be in those rooms, to share that experience with people to get there, I had to bet big. I had to bet big on my education. I had to bet big on what I believed my power was. And I did it. I let go of sort of the monkey bars and hung there for a moment before catching the next one. And I'm really proud of doing that and proud of what I've built. And by the way, it's taken me a long time to even be able to say that, right? We're not always great at that. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for asking. Indeed. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's uh, just the idea of being able to bet on yourself is actually a pretty rare thing. We, uh, we often uh, are willing to bet, but on someone else or something else outside of ourselves that give us confidence. So um, I'm curious about what allowed you or what empowered you to bet on yourself, because the idea of facing big decisions um, yeah. with inherent risks often causes inertia, you know, it's, it's sort of yeah. 
faced with these various opportunities, then you see the downside, you see all the risks, and then we get stuck in this place of doing nothing and just being comfortable with the status quo and then time passes by and so do the opportunities. So what helped you look at those options um, straight up and then make a firm, certain decision that you could move forward? Yeah, um, I think in this case, I might have gotten lucky because that is something I still struggle with, Nikki. I take longer on decisions than I would like to. But I find that when I'm able to quiet the noise, and what I mean by the noise is what's happened before or what might happen or what would happen to my family if X happened or what would happen to my reputation if Y happened. Sort of all that swirl that we get wrapped up in, especially when we're careful decision makers where we can Mm -hmm. see a lot of options, it's hard to feel like you can fully address all of those. And so one of the things I try to do is really remove the interference. Mm -hmm. Focus just on what is in front of me? What's the best decision I can make about that? And the rest of it is for future me to deal with or for me to experience as it comes and I'll make the best decision then. But to trust that I've gotten this far making good decisions. And that doesn't mean that I make rash decisions or fast decisions, Nikki. So I will talk to people who've done this before. I'll educate myself on what, my, uh, what the data says about a decision. But for me, it's really quieting my own internal interference, those fears or doubts. Those don't serve us. They just distract us. So I often say that um, we all have gremlins on the bus, right? For me, the critical point has been forcing my gremlins to ride shotgun. They don't get to drive. (laughs) I love that. That's a memorable line right there. So what are some of your gremlins that you had to overcome? Oh my goodness. I have a big bus of gremlins. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask is your profile um, is going to be so relevant to our listeners to relate to because you're someone who held a very, very senior role at a Fortune 500 company. I um, did. Even in terms of, uh, you know, um, being becoming a single mom and dealing with those responsibilities yeah. and then switching careers, going back to schools. I mean, those are things that, those are not traditional, conventional decisions. Uh, In the face of adversity, one might be tempted to choose the safer path to say, hey, I've got a really senior role in a very big company. It doesn't get any safer than that. It doesn't get more powerful than that. Let me just stick to that. And you did the exact opposite. And like you just mentioned, you quieted the noise and the interference, so you were able to do that. But what were some of the fears and the limiting beliefs that you had to, those gremlins that you had to face? Sure. So first, let me say, Nikki, that I am a white privileged woman in the United States. And so I have, while I have gremlins and choices, there are lots of people in this world who have far more limitations than I. And I just want to acknowledge that, that while I have worked hard for what I have, this system is set up for me and I have lots of people willing to help me. And so I'm privileged in that way. So I just want to call that out because, you know, not all of us sit in a a corporate gig that has a path laid out. I'm fully aware of that. The gremlins that I faced were... um, First, uh, the one that sort of was showed up earliest and has been in the bus the longest uh, is that I didn't grow up or educate myself on business. I was a psychology and sociology major. In this part, chapter of my story, that has become much more useful. But for years, that was something I thought wasn't the same as other people and probably had to be made up for. Mm. MBA that perfect family that people sort of put out on Instagram or, you know, in the corporate Christmas card, I didn't have. I have this huge tribe of, you know, step and uh, my kid's dad, who's no longer my husband. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful patchwork coat, but it's not what everybody's expecting. Right. And so I carried those things and they felt like failure to me. Um, I, the business that I started, I was so delighted with 
and ultimately had to sell it under duress. The first business I had, it was timed inappropriately. So, you know, starting a food service business that's viewed as a luxury in 2006 and running it through up to 2008, there were some changes in our economy that made that <laughs> a successful thing. Right. And so I really carried all that into a room with me. Even mm-hmm. first day of Georgetown, in this cohort, there were 38 folks going through this really rigorous program Everybody standing up and saying what they did and what what they were hoping to do with this program. Man, were my gremlins chattering that day on, you are the least qualified person in this room. Mm -hmm. How did you get here? And I had to just say, well, I'm here. Let's just trust that the people who put me here made the right decision and quiet down. Everybody get back in in your seats. I'm driving. (laughs) Yeah. Some of the gremlins I think that I've faced. And what what would you say to um, you know one of our listeners? Let's say it's a woman that's mid career, um, yeah. dealing with lots of changes in her personal life. Maybe first time mom, uh, perhaps going through that first major promotion where you're faced with bigger responsibilities, and. Um, all those complexities seem to coincide at the same time. And now they're wondering how to juggle it all, you know, questioning whether they have it in them. What practical steps or guidance would you give to someone in that situation so that they too can get uh, rid of the gremlins and, you know, and the chatter in their heads? Sure. So I think I would focus on first, remember and believe that you are beginner here. You haven't done this before. And you are going to be really good at it. But it's new. Mm. And it takes us a while to learn new things, whether that be how to run the cash register at your first job when you're 15, how to walk when you're 14 months old, or how to handle motherhood, especially motherhood with a promotion. Mm -hmm. You're new at this. You're going to be great at it. But you have to learn how to do that. And so give yourself some grace in that. The second thing I would say is focus on what will be true long-term. Keep your eye on that ball. So rather than walking out the door with the baby spitting up on your shoulder and maybe he's warm because he has a fever and somebody's ringing your phone, take a minute. Mm -hmm. Most important to you about work, what's most important to you at home, hold that in your consciousness right in front of you and make your decisions based on that. Don't react. Try to pull yourself out of that and think about what decisions do I need to make to show up with intention in these other areas of my life. That's great advice. That's very practical and and, uh, really provides a strong framework for someone in that situation to be able to move forward and get unstuck. Um, Someone shared with me that uh, one of the biggest mistakes we make is we compare our version one to someone else's version 26. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) And in in that comparison, we start to lose hope or maybe question or have self-doubt and, uh, you know, give up too soon sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I think even our own picture of ourselves is the picture of ourselves at every moment, at every stage, every braces, frizzy hair, fall down in front of your friends, (laughs) screw something up. We carry that into every room we walk into. We don't see ourselves. We don't see how we show up. The idea for my newest book came because I had a friend say to me, hey, I think you should teach people how to do this, how to show up with quiet, grounded confidence. And I burst out laughing, Nikki. I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Hot mess. (laughs) And I had no perception of how that shows up. I joke with my husband that there's a 10 a.m. version of me that is confident and connected and intentional and strategic. And then there's the 10 p.m. me that's a little bit tired and 
a little bit worried and not sure about anything, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, day we shift. Right, yeah. All of those versions of us, they all are appropriate. They're, there's no one that's more, more you than the other. So let's dig into your book. Um, I love the title, Naked at Work. And um, I would love to hear from you, uh, first off, just the inspiration for the book and uh, you know, what it's about, who it's for, and what readers can expect to get from it. Sure. So Naked at Work, the subtitle is A Leader's Guide to Fearless Authenticity. The subtitle is important there because, you know, of late people have gotten the nakedness at work thing wrong. <laughs> um, so let's just be clear. This is about authenticity. And for me, it was really that moment in that conversation where I thought, what is it? What's the story I'm telling myself about me that makes that idea laughable? Because it's not. I trust that person's assessment. And what's the work I have done to be able to objectively think about stories I tell myself, to be able to objectively think about the gifts I find in failure, to be able to look around a room and instead of saying, man, I am different than everybody else in here in so many different ways, let me try to get through this meeting without any of them sort of popping up. Mm -hmm. Instead thinking, I wonder how everybody else here is different. And if we harness that, what could we do as a team? That process, understanding what I have learned and that that has made me richer, is one that I have used with executives for years now. We walk through that in the course of a six-month engagement. And I really wanted to bring that to a broader audience to help them understand that the story you're telling yourself about yourself is just that. And it's no more or less believable than anyone else. And what I got to, though, is when we start talking about that, people sort of think, oh, that's really kind of touchy, touchy-feely, and I don't need to feel better about myself. I need to get shit done. <laughs> so true. Right. I mean, <laughs> especially the higher up you go in corporate world, yeah. there's almost yeah. a setting of let's not talk about anything woo-woo. Let's not talk about the right. stuff. You know, we're all achievers. We get shit done and exactly. talk numbers. And so what I, what I needed to bring forward in this book was not only the how to do it, but for the sake of what. And the data is irrefutable, Nikki. Leaders mm-hmm focus and lead with authenticity and do it in the right way, and we can talk about what that is, have much more effective teams. Mm. And you can see it again and again. It's been proven academically. It's been proven anecdotally as we look at leadership stories. And so for me, that was the meat of it, is we're not talking about, you know, hashtag no filter authenticity on Instagram. That doesn't have any material value, but we can point to and understand the value of focused, emotionally intelligent leadership, and that is authentic leadership. And so this book came to me from sort of a personal place on how do we get there and evolved into how do you get there yourself? How do you lead with that for your team And why does that make you and your company and your organization far more effective? So if you want to compete, you need to know how to do this. And that's what ultimately delivered the book into the world. Excellent. Um, Would you uh, be able to share with us perhaps um, some specific examples from the book um, that illustrate for our audience um, sort of the authenticity in action? Sure. So I would think about, um, I use, I weave nearly a hundred examples of corporate leaders, all anonymized, of course, and then some public stories uh, that we know or about products we know. And so I would think about the story of the birth of post-it notes as an example of how when a company adopts an authentic, open approach and is able to really establish what we call psychological safety, an environment where people feel comfortable talking about stuff that they may not have totally nailed down, Mm -hmm. that makes money. And so the idea is post-it notes were uh, 
identified, uh, the adhesive was identified um, decades ago by a guy named Silver, and he was looking for an adhesive to use in airplanes. And clearly, post-it note adhesive is not ideal for airplanes, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it shouldn't just peel off. It yeah. shouldn't stick permanently. But he was kind of intrigued by this formula. So he went on, he developed what he was supposed to, but he felt safe enough to take that adhesive on kind of an internal years-long road trip through 3M. Being like, mm -hmm. hey, I invented this thing. I can't figure out how we might use it. Here's what I think is important. So he totally failed, and he's out knocking on doors and talking about it in boardrooms in his organization. And the organization let him do this. They funded a number of different failures after that. So the first iteration was, let's think about a really sticky whiteboard. Well, that didn't work. They finally come up. We're talking years now, Nikki, like eight years. They wow. finally come up with the post-it note as we know it. And nobody buys it. They sell like woolen mittens in July. Not a single soul is interested in them. And yet they still keep going. They're pretty sure that this has some sort of stickability somewhere, pardon the pun. <laughs> and so they send them out to their top clients for free. That was the moment when I think it's something like 90 to 85 to 90% of their top clients reordered them. And it was a full 11 years after he invented the adhesive. Wow. It's now one of the top sellers for 3M across their sort of uh, that demographic of product. And it took them 11 years. Think of how many no's. Think of how many times they decided, ah, we're going to put that aside. And they actually put it aside. They didn't, you know, hide it or think about, you know, we better not show anyone we did that. They failed spectacularly again and again and again. And the book just isn't about failure, but I think failure is something we can all key into that we think we should hide. And so I bring it forward as an example, but that authentic and open conversation led by Silver and really supported by the other executives at 3M shows how we're not all fast fix here. And awesome. Really powerful example of having an authentic, engaged, ongoing conversation about something. Danessa, I'm also uh, curious what you think about patterns you've observed in your research or from your own experience um, about women and what prevents us from showing up with confidence and owning our success. And what would you say about what are some recommendations you have about how women in the workplace can show up with that fearless authenticity? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I, when I hear you ask that, Nikki, I think about an example of a client of mine that I, that I talk about in the book, um, who really, her journey was really a lot about how does she quiet that noise? How does she identify what's the best path forward where she is? And she and I use the analogy of dropping a pin on a map. So I'd love to walk you through that because I think that could be really helpful to our listeners. That would be great. So Kate was named, uh, kind of tapped as a potential succession candidate for a C-suite role. And I was brought in to really be a resource for her as she navigated this period, frankly, of pretty, um, pretty clear evaluation, right? So she's tapped on the shoulder and now everybody's watching to see what she can do, to see what she does in this waiting period and to understand if they're going to formally name her or formally name some of the other people that they'd sort of informally looked at. And what we noticed is that tapping on the shoulder made her hyper aware of how she was showing up. And so she wanted to sort of dot her I's and cross her T's and show up as expert. And so she became really cautious about when she would speak up or what she would say or whether she should speak up when other people were saying things that she thought were, you know, sounded like crazy cakes, mm -hmm. but in her area. And so she sort of felt like the rules all of a sudden got a lot stricter 
And she responded to that. Well, the feedback we started to hear was, you know, I think Kate's a great individual contributor and man, she really knows her stuff. She's really an expert, but I'm not seeing her lead broadly enough. She's not thinking strategically enough. Women get that feedback all the time. And I, I, I don't know if she's really able to lead at that level. And so she and I were in a conversation, one of our regular coaching calls, and she was kind of spiraling about this meeting that she had delegated. You know, she's trying to show she's a leader of leaders, so she decided to delegate this meeting, and it had gotten off the rails fast, and now she had a bigger mess to clean up. And I think that's happened to so many of us, and she was interpreting it as many of us too, which was, now i got to clean up this big mess and so she was in this big kind of woulda, shoulda cycle. And I just stopped and I said, you know, Kate, I'm not asking you what you would do or what you should have done. I'm asking you what you're going to do. Mm. That's a different question. We can spend all our energy rocking in a rocking chair on the porch, as we Southerners would say. It doesn't get us anywhere. When we're lost, we're looking for the pin on the map or the blue GPS dot of where we are, mm -hmm. should be. And so where are you? What's the feedback we have and what are we going to do? And for her, I'll never forget it. She looked across her desk at me and she blinked a couple of times and she said, I'd like that in a sign, a neon sign that says, you are here blinking <laughs> my desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it and sounds fact, like she felt she was in a fishbowl being one. Yeah. And so, and instead, you know, once we were able to focus on what do we need to do, not everyone's looking, not what is the right thing, but really what has to happen here? Let go of that you think everybody's looking at you. Let go of that you think you haven't done it. And just start to think about what's the next right thing. Glennon Doyle is one of my favorite writers and she talks about that often. What's the next right thing? She does it personally. It really applies in business. And so Kate started to think about not do I say something or not, but what's the right way to say what I'm going to say? Because we have to say it. I, if I'm thinking it, I'm going to trust that I can bring it forward. And so it became less about sort of which parts of Kate were right and more about Kate believing that she had the experience and the opportunity. And so she was going to demonstrate that. And she and I might think about how to demonstrate that around the edges, but she was going to bring that forward. And lo and behold, in a matter of weeks, we started to get feedback that says, wow, I really like how Kate is weighing in on things or how she's open to talking about different options rather than focused on on the right answer which is different for her on let's have a conversation when you don't know something instead of feeling like you have to be expert mm. and it began to really resonate in a really beautiful way for her and at the end of our engagement she was named as that formal successor and actually i'd love to tell you that she's in the role today but she was poached into a similar role by a bigger organization based on that. Wow. So not only did she get the next job, she actually got two jobs after that by really learning to focus on, I trust where I am. I'm not going to focus energy on questioning what I should do, what I shouldn't do, what I might have done, and just think about what am I going to do? What needs to be done here? And how do I do that in the most effective way? Rather than should I or shouldn't I? Right. Again, like you say, um, it's shutting off all the noise yeah. and being able to focus on where you are and where you need to go and the next best thing to do. Uh, exactly. Rumor has it that she also had a great coach, so I'm sure that helped. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as a coach um, who gets to see leadership in action and, and people forming into who they're meant to be and all that they can be, what are um, some of the critical skills um, that you believe are absolutely essential for women in particular to develop? Um, not just 
from a perspective of letting go of the baggage or the things that uh, tend to hold us back, but also from a perspective of future of work. Yeah. Given how much the workplace is changing, industry and technology is disrupting it so much, the skills and mindset that were that made us successful in the past are no longer enough. So guide us from your perspective. What are you seeing across the workplace, across industries? What are some of the biggest things uh, that you think are most important for women to focus on? So this is an absolutely great story for women because what all the data says and what I see is that emotional intelligence, EI or EQ, as it's referred to, will be the key differentiator for leaders. It is what keeps us separate from machines, is the ability to read a room, to connect with empathy, to influence using a number of different ways, to really understand how your team is feeling, meet with them where they are and lead them forward. That is the critical leadership skill moving into the future of work. And this is a place where across the board, women typically outperform men. Now, the workplace isn't ready in some cases for that full, warm, compassionate EQ, right? There are places where that doesn't play yet. Mm -hmm. It will. And so as women think about, you know, what am I picking up in this room? Or what do I notice about how people are reacting? They can use that information to inform how they choose to lead. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book is you want to be careful not to, for example, take responsibility for what you're picking up or uh, use what you're picking up in a way that doesn't serve the team. You can, you can be authentic or leverage emotional intelligence in ways that isn't going to be successful. But for us, as we think about future of work, really being open to all of the ways that you are wise and you are wise. Being open to that and understanding the information that you are picking up and leveraging that to make the most effective decision will be a really powerful advantage for women in the workplace moving into the future of work. It's really embracing who we are and how we're wired and recognizing that actually gives us um, almost an unfair advantage for the future because it's exactly what is uh, necessary because it's a thing that robots can do and it's what makes us more effective in decision-making and connection and so forth. One of my favorite academic studies uh, that I cite all the time as we think about diversity is about C-factor. Mm-hmm study done several years ago where they measured the collective intelligence of groups. Mm. And they, uh, that hadn't been done before. We've measured IQ often, but we haven't measured collective intelligence of groups. How quickly can a group make a decision? And the single most predictive factor of the collective intelligence of a group, a group's ability to solve a problem, a group's ability to move to solution quickly or to identify options was whether or not there was a woman present on the team. Wow, that's a powerful study. That that's powerful insight. Right. And, and it totally Your makes sense because yeah, because we're connectors, we're natural connectors right. and community builders. Uh, how do you see that playing out in uh, a very um, uh, not only diverse workplace, but one that's spread across geographically. I mean, there are more teams that are virtual today that are needing to collaborate over Zoom or conference calls and so forth. How do you see that playing out or also what needs to be done differently perhaps in that context? I think we would have to think about what are our preferred, uh, our preferred methods of connection and how do those need to be adapted? So we all uh, have a set of preferences about how we do that. And for many of us, that's one-on-one or more informally. And so as we think about a more geographically diverse uh, workplace, a a place where not all of our uh, folks are in the same building or even in the same set of buildings, we want to really think about 
what are our preferences for forming relationships and how might those be done another way? So we just added folks to our team at my company and one of the expectations I set of them is, hey, we connect informally all the time. It's part of our culture. It's really important. And my preference is that we always do that by Zoom. Mm. And the reason is there's something about being able to see each other. That's important. Right. And so that doesn't mean all the time, but what it means is in my company, put your ball cap and your leggings on. I'm fine with that. I still want to see your face. Mm-hmm. It helps us build that relationship. And so I think getting really clear about what's important to us in building those relationships and being able to set expectations for people on we want to connect this way. Here's why it's important. And so there is a difference between Zoom and a phone call or that we're going to connect on Slack informally about what happened on your weekend, as well as whether or not we're going to make that deadline. Mm-hmm. Noticing if I would have stopped by the water cooler five years ago, 10 years ago, what is the, that equivalent today? And how do I harness the power of that informal relationship management, um, perhaps just using a different tool? That's great. Do you also see that um, always connected, especially with uh, different geographies and time zones? Now you've got people in different locations. And because we have the ability to stay connected at all times, it puts um, an, another layer of pressure in terms of drawing boundaries between personal and professional time, if you will. I think it really does. Yeah. Right. And and so in that context, what is your advice or what has worked for you that helped you manage competing priorities? Because obviously you've had success, um, you know, in, in, on both sides, you found your way. Um, and so what helped you focus? So uh, a couple of different things. One is I do not work in live organ transplant. That is the only urgent <laughs> work. I don't fight fires. I'm not in a police cruiser. And so I do not need to respond to anything within a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. This isn't life or death. If I were hit by a bus or won the lottery tomorrow, my company would continue. And so knowing that really quickly helped me. Another piece of that framework for me was when I was working not for myself, my company and I settled up every two weeks. And so if I felt like I was giving more than I was getting, that was on me to then draw the boundary more firmly. Hmm. Because the agreement was clear. I knew what I was going to be paid. And so if I was putting in more, if I was checking my phone more, I had the choice. Now that choice may have implications, right? But I have a choice to do it differently. Simple things I do. I delete my email app from my phone when I go on vacation. Oh, that's a great recommendation. You can put it right back. Right. I delete LinkedIn when I go on vacation. I have a team that knows that if you absolutely need me and they know how to, what those things might be, you can text me. Mm-hmm. And I check texts. But I hold those boundaries really firmly because I am a better leader when I come back if I have had rest. We deserve rest. Absolutely. That's fantastic. That's some great advice of drawing boundaries and needing to take care of ourselves so we have, uh, we can give more and give better to others. Well, I think really important for leaders to set a clear expectation too. So many of our listeners are senior leaders. Many of them are middle leaders. Many of them maybe just aspiring into leadership roles but making sure that you're not doing things that are invisible. So one of the things I do as a mom is I answer email at weird hours. So uh, I'll be sitting in the lobby of a little ballerina's dance school tonight, and I will be clearing email because I don't need to go home, right? Yeah. (laughs) Email. I have a very clear expectation with my team that they are never to respond to anything they get off hours unless it says urgent that that is about my convenience, not theirs. Sometimes on the weekends, if I think my team is sort of hyper-responsive, I'll answer email and not be connected to the internet, and all of those will send at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. So being mindful of how we show up for other people, the unintentional expectation that we sometimes create, 
is the responsibility of our leaders. Mm -hmm. I think part of the uh, challenge of the always connected mode is the undue pressure we put on ourselves, believing that because we have um, you know, a message from someone in an influential role that we must respond within 30 seconds. Right. And it somehow reflects badly on us. And so our own inability to draw those boundaries creates this negative cycle that eventually causes burnout and uh, doesn't do us any favors. Well, one of my favorite pieces about the future of work is that uh, most of us will change jobs every three years from here on out. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I try to keep front and center for myself is as important as that email is, as that urgent text is, I likely won't be here. That person likely won't be here. Now, there may be ramifications. I'm very clear on there are times we have to do that. But we get caught up in our moment, caught up in our own ego, caught up in our own expectations of ourselves. And so whether it's when the baby's spitting up on your shoulder as you walk out the door or whether you're responding to the email, focus on the intention. Who is it you want to be? And be that person. And these are the things that are so powerful uh, to learn. And that's, to me, the power of mentorship and coaching, especially, uh, to get these kind of practical tips and guidance. Uh, because in the absence of that, we're meandering and, and right. uh, going through trial and error and burning out and, frankly, missing out on the things that actually matter the most in our lives. Exactly. So um, I'm curious, just going off to a different topic, um, you have been a coach and a guide and a mentor to many people and uh, are uh, continuing to guide and develop leaders. Who do you look up to? Wow. Um, I look up to so many people. Well, who would you love to meet in person and love to learn from? Someone that you admire from a distance, perhaps? Yeah, so um, I have to tell you, Michelle Obama was a huge inspiration for um, what if, for my book, What If We Could Teach People to Be As Authentic As She Was in Hers. What If We Could Make People Feel Comfortable uh, Doing That. Um, I, I would love to be able to have a conversation with her. I think uh, having a conversation with folks who have not always believed they were uh, capable, resourceful, and whole. I think uh, Greta, who is uh, currently on, on watch for our environment, I just read a beautiful article about how difficult her middle school years were, and here's this young person now unabashedly, fearlessly leaning into a message that people don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, those conversations are always interesting to me. I try to spend a little bit of time each day in story, understanding story, uh, like we're doing on this podcast or listening to an audiobook or listening to how people have viewed their world. Because I think um, the gift that gives us is an ability to see the world through different eyes. And so I really admire um, lots of our famous leaders, but Man, if I got to sit down with each one of your listeners, Nikki, and I know there are so many, <laughs> but um, I think I would be um, so, uh, if my experience is true, I know I would find something to admire in each one of them, something that they are doing that is courageous, that is compassionate and connected. And we are surrounded by brave, wise, compassionate leaders, whether we know them to be that or not. And so learning how to bring that forward in people has been honestly the, the greatest gift in my life. Yeah. And, and stories are such a powerful way of connecting people yeah. and, uh, you know, expressing a powerful idea. And uh, just like you've chronicled the stories of people in your books, I'm excited to uh, share that with our listeners. And, uh, and it's available on Amazon now, right? It is. And, it is. Uh, and so, uh, there's an audio book as well. So if you're a podcast listener and uh, you haven't yet grown tired of my voice, you can hear <laughs> Uh, hear me uh, do it on Audible as well. Excellent. So not only do we uh, get to read about or learn about 
the incredible leaders uh, and stories you've defined in your book, but also get to know more about your perspective on fearless authenticity. Um, so for listeners out there, be sure to check out Naked at Work, A Leader's Guide to Fearless Authenticity, available on Amazon. And um, Danessa, this has been incredible. Thank you for sharing all these insights and stories and strategies from your experience and the work that you do in developing leaders. Um, one final question I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on. What do you think really accelerates success? Yeah. Well, and especially for women, what would your final recommendation be? Absolutely. And Nikki, just thank you for having me. This has been uh, just a privilege to be able to connect with you and uh, connect with your listeners. I think the key to accelerating success as we move forward is really to be naked at work, to understand that what has brought you here has perfectly prepared you for this job. You have everything you need and bringing it forward will enrich your team and enrich your experience. Now, you want to do that the right way, right? The key to women's success is getting naked at work is not, uh, has not historically always been. Um, and, and there are still environments where authenticity is, um, is a difficult dive. And the book acknowledges and walks through that. But really understanding that everything you know can be brought forward in service to other people and that that can drive you faster to where you want to go than holding it back is that key. You have everything you need. That is fantastic advice. And uh, I think we will all remember that and look forward to learning more from your book. Thank you again uh, for being on the show. We're so delighted uh, to not only have you, but learn uh, incredible insights and wisdom from you and uh, so grateful for the work that you do. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really appreciated the time together. Thanks for listening. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode. And be sure to take the quiz on the website. Your score will tell you where you are, what helps you gain momentum, and what holds you back. You'll also get a free guide with cutting-edge career strategies. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.